My name's Tracy Smith. I was born and raised in Kalamazoo, Michigan. In 1998, I attended the South by Southwest Film Festival in Austin, Texas. And at a promotional side event at a local coffee house, I saw a showcase featuring some of the most talented performance poets in the country. Afterwards, I returned home and founded the Kalamazoo Poetry Slam. Now, almost 25 years later, for the sake of history, for the sake of nostalgia, and for some of the incredibly talented people we've lost along the way, I give you, dear listener, the Keizu Poetry Slamcast. This is Slam Poem. Later, like, the poems are like, you dirty fucking whore. But this is one of the good ones from the beginning. My ears reach in the suburban noise of night. There's a question asked in one naked moment that never crossed into I am the Smith. I am the poet. I am the Industrial Revolution. No longer bright as fireflies. No the sweet the sweet slam cast was recorded on April 10th, 2001. It's the second round of the semifinals. It's hosted by Chris Bulmer, and the feature was Tehut Nine, who was on the previous year's Nationals team from the New Yorican Cafe. Now, the New Yorican was known for never letting a poet uh, be on their National Slam team twice. Which was cool, because New York has a lot of talented people, and there's no reason that they shouldn't have fresh faces every year to represent them at the National Slam. And I was excited to have him at the show. I don't have a copy of his feature set in the archive to share with you, uh, but he does do a poem in the open mic. It's probably for the best that I don't have the feature recording, because he was the one feature poet in my memory the audience didn't really care for. But he was as arrogant as he was average. And I don't want to blame it on New York. And the effect that that city has on people. Because later on down the line, we're going to have some really great New York poets feature at the Keizu Slam. But mediocre features aside, this is a really great show. And I know you're going to enjoy it. We are still cursing the snow. And in Kalamazoo, Michigan, there is a slam tonight. Somewhere, someone is discovering fighting. Someone's discovering boxing, fishing, fucking, and kissing. And there is a slam in Kalamazoo, Michigan tonight. Somewhere in some little dark room, a little girl or a little boy has found a pencil, a piece of paper, and a little bit of inspiration, just enough to start that poem that starts it for every single one of us and they are scrolling out the future, they are scrolling out the past, they are scrolling out right now. They are creating their own history. They are creating the dynamic conclusions that they make inside their own mind without even knowing that they are doing it. The subconscious is colliding with the conscious reality outside that window that makes that train go down those tracks, that brings every single one of these people into this room, that lights those lights that bring the people into that door. And there's a slam going on in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Somewhere, someone is dying, and someone is being born, and someone is dying, and someone is being born, and someone is dying, and someone is being born, and someone is dying, and someone is being born, and someone is dying, and someone is being born. And there's a slam tonight in Kalamazoo, Michigan.
We have exactly one half hour to get all of these open micers up on this stage and off. What I will encourage you to do is to read one poem if you've got a poem, sing one song if you've got a song, and at the end of that half hour, we stop. I am drawing these names at random. If you are at the end of the list, at the end of that half hour, we can't get you on, I am terribly sorry, but we got to get this thing going. So, without further ado, what time is it right now? It is poetry time. That's right. Let's do it. All right. First up to the stage, we have Cherie. All right. All right, I got one poem, and it's about my first rebellion. Because, see, I'm a badass now, but I wasn't always a badass. And this is how I became the badass that stands before you today. I have a clear memory of the day my mom came to me and said I should play an instrument. I was seven. But even then, I knew what she was really saying. She was telling me that I was too clumsy, too slow, not active enough. She was telling me I needed a hobby. What could I say? She was right. She didn't ask me what I wanted to play, though. She made me try the piano. So I did, and I sucked. <laughs> my music teacher told my mom, tactful as he was, that um, maybe the piano wasn't for me and I should try something else. No shit, Sherlock, I could have told him that. But they still didn't ask me what I wanted to play. My music teacher suggested the flute. I didn't want to play the flute. I wanted an alto sax, but nobody asked me, so I played the flute. And I was decent, good even. I spent five years playing that damn flute. I tried to break it, lose it, sell it. I just wanted to get rid of the damn thing, hoping that maybe, maybe, next time, they'd ask me what I wanted to play. And I'd look at them, and I'd say, I want to play a sax, man. But my flute wouldn't be broken, lost, or sold. So I played it. Rehearsals three days a week for two hours each, recitals every month, and I was always on the end where I could see the alto sax. And as I proceeded from Mary Had a Little Lamb to Mozart, not the best Mozart, but it was Mozart, I had to watch that alto sax weep and wail. And then when I was 12, I went to band camp. It was inevitable. I went through the first, second, third, and fourth weeks. Choked them down, actually. By the end of the fifth week, I thought I was going to go nuts. And then, one day, in the sixth week of band clap, I took my flute, and I threw that fucker in the lake. I had had five years of families and teacher Ta teachers taking that flute and shoving it into every uncomfortable orifice of, my, orifice of my body and soul, and I had had enough! <laughs> Woo! The people in the front, how you doing? Yeah? All right, I'm traveling um, with Tehet Nine, who's your feature tonight. And yeah, definitely give it up, he's gonna rock the house. Um, I'm from Miami. And I'm hitting some spots and up in Michigan, and whoo, it's cold. Anyways, I have a book called The Writings of Just One Negro Woman. So if you like what you hear, definitely hit me off um, if you want to get a copy. All right. So here we go. 
This is just what I was feeling. I got a feeling some of y'all won't understand. The world can stop and watch the sun pass in front of the moon, fascinated, simply amazed by pictures coming from Mars. I mean, those toy trucks can't even seem to stay on the shelves. But as people are living, lying, and dying in the streets, the world just walks on I got a feeling some of y'all won't understand while politicians continue to argue on morning news shows about family values and what a good adoptive parent should look like. Meanwhile, one in four girls and one in seven boys will be raped or sexually assaulted before the age of 18, more than likely in their own homes, and the world refuses to allow loving, caring people to give these children a true home because they do not fit perfectly into family value categories. I got a feeling some of y'all won't understand. Black people make up 12 to 14% of the US population. However, we make up at least 52% of the AIDS population. Meanwhile, my brothers and sisters are still loving with no condoms. Baby, I ain't afraid of that girlfriend that you don't have coming home. I'm not even afraid of an unwanted pregnancy. I am afraid that you are trying to take my life at the same time my body should be coming to life. <sighs> I got a feeling some of y'all won't understand Cosmopolitan, GQ, and Vogue run around showcasing that heroin chic look. Yes, folks. For $2,305, you too can have this dresser suit that really looks like my grandmother's tablecloth. <laughs> But before ordering, make sure you have those dark circles around your eyes reminiscent of a raccoon. And make sure you have that shrunken in stomach reminiscent of a person dying from hunger. And don't forget to cover up those tracks in your arms. They seem to remind me of Grand Central Station. And while my young friends in the suburbs are buying into this 13, 14, 15 years old, dying for a hit, no, daddy dear, it is no longer those people's problems. It is your problem, but the world continues to pay Calvin Klein phone bills as he perpetuates that heroin chic look down, playing the true horror of a heroin addiction. I got a feeling some of y'all won't understand. We race on this super information highway. We fight over everything. We take one country and give it to another and continue to call mankind civilized. We fight over everything from drug trafficking, RUD 47, euthanasia, sexuality, presidential blowjobs, athlete salaries, and which TV show is going to be the hottest at mid-season. We still don't know who killed Kennedy, what really happened to the Iran-Contra affair, and why can't poetry books make any money? <laughs> why can't poetry books make any money? until the poet is dead. See, I got a feeling some of y'all won't understand. See, the last time I checked the news, I did not hear the news announce opposing parties trying to agree on who loved whom more or how it is a shame that most of our nation's children go to bed hungry every night and up until the last budget cut, they could count on one free meal a day in schools. No, we'd rather watch television shows about 95-year-old grandmothers who want to get breast in.
But see, I sometimes wonder about all those parents who stand online to get the hottest new toys, would bother to go to a PTA meeting, what type of minds would our nation produce? And I sometimes wonder about all those people who stand online to get into the hottest new clubs, would bother to go down and vote, what type of laws will we change? But the story is old and it's been told. You can't understand the problem until you realize you are the problem. Be the problem. Maybe we can change the problem. But you see, in this world of high-tech communication, my alienation brings me not to a point of misunderstanding, but greater understanding. And I got a feeling some of y'all won't understand. Greetings. My name is Tehut Nine. Um, this is uh, my first time here in uh, Michigan, in Kalamazoo, Michigan. So <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, this is the part of a tour that I'm doing currently called the Mind Magician International Portrait Tour, which covers um, you know, several uh, states and uh, cities in the United States as well as uh, some countries in Europe and um, some things that I'll be doing in the Caribbean sometime later on this year. I have a book, Mental Hieroglyphics. It's 10 bucks. Get a copy, um, you know, if you like what you hear and, you know, stick around for the, for the feature after the slam. Um, I hear tonight's going to be a hot slam, so I'm very happy to be here tonight. Now, can everybody back there hear me? Right, when I was back there a while ago, I heard, you know, like some people talking while the poets was on the stage. You know, you got to respect the mic and respect the poets when they're performing. So, um, real quick, I'm going to do something. How y'all feeling? Come on, give me some energy, people. How y'all feeling? Yeah. I am a mind magician. I practice my mind on you magicians who condition your minds by keeping your thoughts confined in the confines of bad thinking. So now I'm linking God's thinking to your thinking because the universe is blinking in your minds, but you're too blind to see the powers in your mind as the universe goes blink, blink. Use the magic in your mind. Blink, blink. Just say the universe is mine. The universe is mine. The universe is mind. So I really don't mind if you matter, because I practice mind over matter. But what matters is the mind. So stop being blind to the fundamentals. All is mind, the universe is mental, and your mind is the most essential, most instrumental instrument in the orchestra of existing. But we exist in manifested thoughts, so we're a part of all the thoughts that we have brought into fruition. So to change our ill conditions, we have to change our mind's condition by reconditioning our minds. We need those with open minds to open up closed minds, and those with business minds to mind their 
business. As we remind each other to keep our minds full by being mindful of those who play mind games and use mind control to keep us mind stressed and leave us mindless because they know God will bless the mind that's got its own. So get your own minds because you can't own mine. But if you lose your mind seeking peace of mind, then don't worry your minds because I will give you a peace of my mind. For in my mind too many people are out of their minds and they never keep in mind that if they lose their minds that they can find their minds by making up their minds to follow or lead where shallow minds can't proceed, perceive or conceive the thoughts being taught in my school where minds rule flesh without distractions. For whosoever controls your thoughts controls your actions. So act on your thoughts by giving them thoughtful thoughts guide the mind and mind is divine. So don't give your minds to these blind politicians who have your minds conditioned to keep away from magicians like me. See, I'm a mind magician. An alchemist of thoughts transmuting dense thoughts to precious thoughts and precious thoughts to perfection. I used to give my mind C-sections just the C-sections of my thoughts. But I am the heart of the art form where cold minds get warm from staying informed by staying informed. But you've been misinformed to use my skin form to inform you of who I am. So your datum is wrong form, not just a black man. I'm the man that made God to make man in my image because I'm aging, I'm aging. Image in black. See, I'm that mental magician who became the first politician to run for mayor in electric city. I won by 50,000 votes just to re-vote against this vote age where the power is gauged by those in power of the people's minds and the people's souls using religion to practice mind control while they would hold the light by storing the light in light bulbs and black holes where black holes the light like my mind to give life to your minds as I redefine lines to make you read the fine lines so what will you do in a time without time where your mind is a cage and you believe that this is the information's age but don't even know your information's age for the page is protesting your free verse so free yourself first before you and I verse about the universe's versatility in the university of life where we write with the mind in the jungle of the mind swinging on the vines just to prove we're divine for the mind is divine where things intertwine so life and death are in your mind free and slave is in your mind for everything is in your mind so to free yourselves just free your minds. Oh my God, that was so cool. So that's more applause for Tate and I, and that was like the coolest thing. Ever. Right, now you have to listen to me. This is called, this is called hunting sheep. A strong family is like a time-release vault that's door opens more year after year. Unfortunately for me, our family vault has been opening up to reveal gun-toting Republican Bushelonians yelling things like, that George W., he's gooder than his daddy ever was good. <laughs> In short, rednecks. After my 12th birthday, my Uncle Ross stepped out of that vault and purchased me my first and only high-powered 22-gauge semi-automatic sure-as-shit-to-kill-anything-that-bleeds hunting rifle. 
And in the card, along with a photo of a guy wearing antlers and a bearskin thong, was a plane ticket to Montana. I involuntarily winced. Yeah, Nate, you can't hide that grin from me. Your mama said you ain't old enough to go to deer camp, so I figured, hell, we'll take him to sheep camp. Sure enough, uh, Ross wanted me to have myself a mountain sheep skin rug of my very own. A Montana mountain sheep. After packing my bags with books on survival, my Boy Scout knife, and several other necessary items, I flew out to Montana with my uncle and several of his associates. Isn't enough armor-piercing ammunition to seriously offend an aircraft carrier. That's for Bill. He likes to get them sheet down with one shot. Real sportsman-like and all, right, Bill? Bill answered with a voice like pure phlegm. <laughs> a few hours later, and I was sitting behind a light brown and gray rock blind with my uncle, shiny new killing machine, poised and ready for the first sheep to come gracefully bounding from the mountaintop so I could blow its fucking head off. You smell that, Nate? You smell that? Yeah, you farted. No, no. It smells like stale milk and cow shit. Is that the smell of mountain goat, Uncle Ross? No, that's Bill. We need to chuck him in the river when we get back to camp. <laughs> Luckily for the mountain goats and my sanity, no mammals were harmed that day, though Bill did blast the shit out of a be beautiful mountain songbird who he claimed sounded like Barbara Streisand. Bill only listened to Merle Haggard when he was drunk. Later that night, when Ross and Bill were out hunting Wumpus's Wackets and Democrats, I sat by the fire composing a sonnet about mountain songbirds in the stars. And in Fate's effort to open that family vault just a little wider, I accidentally left it in the lawn chair next to the six-pack of Milwaukee's Beast. Later that night, I stumbled out of the tent to take a piss and found, in my horror, my uncle sitting alone by the fire reading my poem. Internal consternation forced me to stare in terror, anticipating the moment he would erupt in laughter or toss the sensitive poetic drivel into the flames. Neither occurred that evening. He simply stared and stared at the page, rubbing his eyes, shaking his head. Finally, he folded it back up and set it back on the chair. On the flight home, Ross passed me a napkin with a few lines scribbled unevenly on it. The napkin read, I try not to make a peep when I hunt the mountain sheep. I always catch and keep more when I hunt them in my sleep. <laughs> a few weeks later, I told my grandmother about it. It was then that the vault seemed to swing wide open. Your uncle's dyslexic, Nate. He can't read. Growing up in a strong family creates a sense of home. It's important to pay attention to the time-release lock. Someday it'll open on you. Someday you'll know where you really come from. say that I don't write sad songs. So I wrote a sad song. I had everything a man could want. house, a car, a wife, a dog, and some fish. It's a sad song. Until that fateful day that I broke out with a heartbreak of psoriasis. The heartbreak of psoriasis. It 
It'll tear your world apart The heartbreak of psoriasis Psoriasis will break your little heart This piece is about the great American pastime of infidelity. Lie to me. Lie to me and use that dry ice that is your tongue and tell me that I am the golden child. Tell me that time wasn't just trickling by when I took all your childhood insecurities, placed them between my legs and in turn made you a man. Lie to me. Lie to me because I don't want to believe that you have gone out for smokes and to drop by your so-called co-worker's house. See, I want to believe that you will return with grocery store flowers and cheap wine because times have been tough after the holidays, but you still like to make love sometimes when we are drunk. Lie to me. See, no longer will you commit emotional acts of infidelity on short business trips using the line about how I am the one at home who does not understand your newfound spirituality. If only these unsuspecting women knew that I am the one who is spiritual and you are the one who falls asleep when you meditate, so lie to me, goddammit. Give me something for the pain. No, not a hit of Klondike bars chased by a shot of bourbon. I need something stronger to cancel out this burning sensation that I feel in the back of my nostrils as I hear you whisper through your nap about the Texan who got away. See, I am the one who you said was exquisite when vulnerable, not her. So just tell me a joke. See, place your heart against the wax in my ears and beat and beat and beat and beat again that line, a uh, lie that you told on the first day that went, hello, my name is. <laughs> See, give me something. Tell me that you got more stamina than you're showing me right now. At least more stamina to last through the confusing times. Do not tell me the truth that when the heartbreak comes down and the rubber hits the road that I will have to call my drunken cousin Joanne who is five times married, seven times divorced and ask her how long does the pain last? And she will slur that one equation that she remembers from 10th grade locker room math, which reads, for every month you were a couple, that's three months you'll spend crying over him, so lie to me. See, tell me something. Do me this one favor. You have done it so many times before. Remember that time that you told me that you wouldn't sleep with me if I used the same rhythm that I learned from all the men before you? That, well, that turned out not to be true. See, <laughs> you would have slept with me no matter what rhythm I used to move around you, so lie to me. Give me just a few more weeks with my shrink. You know, Sister Jones from the church, she said, Lord, well, she'd have grab your strength because there's a good man in the future for you. 
to give me just a little more time to have lunch with all my male friends who will hate you soon enough when they hear the truth that you have done triple bypass surgery on a perfectly healthy heart and that when you stitched me up you left a tattered decaying can opener in my arteries causing me to bleed to death so now I lay me down to sleep I pray for a story for my soul to keep and let that story say that I am the first name on the list and you will do your best to keep that list concealed from my I really want this one to work out dreams lie to me it's the one thing you could do for the one day of true love that I gave to you All right. I never knew how great America was until last night when I watched a porn flick through an open window. It don't get no better than that. It was voyeurism times three when a man is fucking a woman and they are filmed by a cameraman and someone rinsed that videotape and I peeped that movie through an open window. I am become that man fucking that woman. America means never having to meet your lover. All 250 million of us are simultaneously getting fat on couches watching other men and women shoot our baskets and run our races and defend our goals for us. I don't have to leave my house at all. The whole world is delivered to my door in white cardboard boxes and my ice box is stocked with two cases of beer heartily endorsed by two football heroes. America means athleticism begins and ends at the refrigerator. America is best viewed through a 90-inch big-screen TV life-size. It don't matter if the TV people don't look like me or dress like me or act like me because they look and dress and act like I wish I did, and that's what matters. Television tells us the whole world is white, 20-something and beautiful, and we believe it. We're all just sitting around New York City coffee houses trading banalities with clever clones of ourselves. America means must-see TV is no lie. We don't need to go to hell, because we're already there. We're living a baby. Hell is pleasing illusion painted so thickly in harsh reality. We don't know the difference. We are eating shit and liking it because it looks like porterhouse. We're wallowing in the mud, imagining the beaches of Jamaica. We're fornicating with dogs and horses all the time, thinking of Claudia Schiffer. America means never having to open your eyes. And what's wrong with that? We can go right on believing the whole world loves us for our most American contributions to culture, blue jeans, and Baywatch. The French don't really hate us. They're just embarrassed we had to save their butts from the Germans, right? The Russians are whining about the fall of communism. And the Canadians think we stole their beer and hockey teams. America means never having to say you're sorry because we write our own history books. This is America. And everyone is busting down the gates of Tanaris and crossing the river sticks to get in because in America, we can pretend we're not suffering while we surround ourselves with our luxury sedans and our big screen TVs. In America, the same are locked away for disturbing the peace. In America, the best of us will die in prisons or rot in the streets. In America, George is king. America, are you listening? Are you listening? All right. What did you guys think? I've got one. I've got two. 
got three. I've got four. If you listen, you can hear them. Gunshots in the distance. Rapid fire sounds like fury, like angry soldiers hungry for war. I can see them just beyond the tree line, playing their war games, grunting orders at each other like pack dogs, getting ready to the, for the hunt, getting ready to kill and die for me and my long hair, me and my right to speak the truth about a long line of soldiers in my family, generation after generation, war men in my family, spreading their seed like napalm murderers, begetting murderers. In my family, there's a long-standing tradition of waiting for a train wreck. Twisted metal sounds like fury, like a million timeless warriors standing there, honorably. Stripped of everything, honorably. And dying, honorably. They were bold-faced aberrations of an age-old disposition. They were hard-nosed military fathers that were there and angry or never there at all. And they broke us like they were broken. First in boot camp, children forced into manhood, then again for real this time on the battlefield where they kept pictures of our mothers to remind them what they were fighting for. They held our mothers close and they gave us life. And one by one, each to each and son by son, they gave us a heritage of service to our country, but never our family. And one by one, each to each and son by son, they went off to war and came back different men not ready for anything but a train wreck. All right. You, 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 you have impacted on me like a meteor to the moon. You have carved and created a sense of compassion from within my consciousness, some of which I don't understand or love or love to hate or love to forget and not remember. I don't understand from my hands why I write what I do, why I am so often alienated by some, but others wish to accept me for who I am. Are we not of the same human race? Do I not have 46 chromosomes, 23 from my mother, 23 from my father? And if we go back far enough, we are descendants from something far greater than which we understand. We wish aliens come visit us, yet we alienate ourselves amongst each other. Must everything be classified and coded within the Dewey Decimal System? Does this really help us? I feel it hurts us more in the end, or love my race, my face, my glory for all its beauty, its foundations. I want my ancestors to be proud of me, to know that their bloodshed was not in vain. I feel their pain, tears fall like little droplets in the rain. Tears of madness, tears of sadness, tears of gladness, tears of blue, tears of me, tears of you. Love to hate what a juxtaposition, thoughts that brought us here, thoughts that brainwash us today and yesterday against our free will that is so eloquently stated in the Declaration of Independence that we hold these truths to be self-evident. But I'm not going to tell you what Martin has already told you. I am not looking for a handout for retribution for slavery that personally does not encompass me, but culturally and historically it does. So where do we go from here, America? I love to forget the large cries and sighs of my ancestors' eyes who struggle so much and receive so little. Today we struggle less and receive so much more. Or how the state of Mississippi had over 40 legal lynchings in a year. But when I look into the mirror today, I see corporate crack, capitalism cracked in stone, not only kills two birds with one stone, but kills the community. And my community is your community, is America's community. 
blacks kill more blacks today. And what do we say? Man, we ain't make them AKs. If you think banning guns is the answer, if you take away my second amendment, you might not stop without one. Wake up. I smell the Hannibus. But America did not stop when my ninth grade friend Steve was shot down and paralyzed from the waist down. When my cousin Demetri was stabbed and killed by another cousin. You want a B.E.? No ABC, no CBS, no CNBC ever came to mind with me. Man, not even BT. As I perch here, as a Sankofa bird does, Malcolm softly, soulfully, powerfully speaks to me and says, the chickens have come home to roost, my brother. The chickens have come home to roost. All right, what'd you guys think of that? I have an 8.0, an 8.5, an 8.5, an 8.6, and an 8.9. That's right. What do you think of James, guys? What do you think of James? That's right. All right. We get a 25.6 for James. Give him a round of applause, guys. All right. Next up, Melanie, are you ready? Welcome to the stage, guys. I am having a beat love affair. I want to make love to Jack Kerouac, climb on the back of that black motorcycle and go on the road, speeding down highways and byways that ain't been traveled for years. I will go to a place where they snap fingers instead of clap hands, back to a time when poets still were all black and there was no such thing as a smoke-free coffee house. Back to a time when black was a lady called a colored girl with much affection. And we all had the San Francisco blues and children were tired babies wailing on their mama's hips. I want to be a beat poet, make love to the sound of Jack's voice, explode in erotic mischief. To work up to my poem, I want to go underground. I will ride the train of my viable thought, get caught up in the rapture of revolutionary new poetic ideas, pound out the beat of my poetry with both fists, because I am that beatnik chick, only I don't need cigarettes to blow smoke. I want to be one of the best minds of our generation, destroyed by madness, starving, naked, and hysterical, because baby, that's when poetry had a beat. And when I open my mouth, radical visions will fly out with wings. Parents will forbid their children to read me. Children will sneak out past curfew to drink my words like lattes. I want to be somebody's unembarrassed muse, write the requiem for a dream on the back of a matchbook, unveil its divine connotation to the masses. I will be the reflection of your deepest pain, mirror the angst we think we portray when we wear black. And I will climb the mountains of heaven and stake my claim and I will not fade away because Jack, as far as I'm concerned, the beat goes on and the beat goes on and the beat is going to carry me to heaven on angels' wings to the bosom of Jesus until we all believe that poetry is best read behind a mic because you see, Jack, baby, you give new meaning to the words detached masterpiece. You make me want to be that beat poet, give birth to poetry in intervals of time releasing in slow rhythmic thoughts. Two kisses and two sheets to the wind for you, Jack. A kiss for days gone by down in the village when smoke was a staple and angst was a must and the poetry, the poetry was real. 
Give me the beat or give me death, because I'd rather lay me down and die if I can't put a beat in my, po my poem, or at least in my back pocket. Baby, I'm going to wrap a million starry nights around me and take a ride on the back of that bike through the cosmos, baby, because I'm a poet. And it's you, Jack, I think about whenever I hear a heartbeat, a backbeat, hell, any kind of beat. I am having a beat love affair. I've been making love to words for days now. I've been wearing black because I have to. I'm beginning to think I really am a poet now. All right. Judges, what did you think of that? So I'm counting 42s on 94 to 55, and I'm following 23 all the way to St. Louis, passing through populated desolation where we memorialize bloodshed, and realization comes with every rusted trailer screaming that this is the true America. Dilapidated shacks and semis carrying cows straight to our dinner plates, killed just for you. And I don't know what disturbs me more, that most Indians don't have running water or that Californians do. And if you're going to San Francisco, eat sushi and leave. Don't talk to the locals. Their lives read like subtitles in a Woody Allen film. They're trying to shove modems up my ass with a dot-com chaser. It may have been in Eden once, but somebody ate the apple. And now when you fall in California, it's all over. There is a gap, a gap on the corner of Haight-Ashbury and a hippie chick junkie trying to sell me a dime bag at the bus stop. And this is what America is, Silicon Valley and rolling blackouts, one vortex with more money than the entire Southwest, where there are billboards advertising Indian reservations in fields of burned-out Chevys. They get the Redwoods, and we get Ford Motor Credit. I want the internet to crash so I can personally smash every Palm Pilot, break the chains that bind yuppies and money, and educate our children for real. Fuck school vouchers. Take them to Moriarty, New Mexico. Show them real poverty. Take them to Amarillo, Texas. Show them Golden Gate Park where 19-year-old children sleep beneath bridges huddled together with refugees from 1969. And it ain't long, beautiful hair anymore, baby. Ask them where their next meal is coming from. This is the true America. I found more integrity in Vegas than I did in Berkeley. At least they're honest about their hypocrisy. So now I'm following 23, following 23s on 55 to 94, and I'm counting 42s all the way home through hills and farmlands, and I never thought I'd say this, but I'm happy to be back in the Midwest because I went to San Francisco and no one wore flowers in their hair. Judges! I've dreamed of beauty. I've dreamed beautiful dreams. Every girl boy knows it'll come. Oh, fabulous day. Photos to show future boy-girl boyfriends, pursing turgid lips, not of blood and roses, but consider my future in society. Consider the disappointment. No, 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 not now, not now. Just for tonight, I can slip on my red sequence six-inch stilettos and pretend. I'm not the flower. I'm the vase that holds the flower. I'm not the flower. I'm the vase that holds the flower. And this 
This is going to be my very special, my first, oh, prank me, Barbara Streisand with your magic wand, my first gay and lesbian transgender high school prom. <laughs> Silence! First, the instructions. Number one, arrive at my house, Tracy Smith, bearing gifts of sumptuous silk and latex bondage gear. Demonstrate you are queer by offering to help me with the clasps and straps as I model them for you, Dan Stevens. In front of your loving parents and siblings, my breasts heaving with anticipation. Drac. Remember what it was like at our first gay and lesbian transgender dance? It was like Scooby-Doo at the Weird Water Park. It was like Scooby-Doo versus the Powerpuff Girls. It was like the Teletubbies learning how to hide the octopus. Uh-huh. Instruction number two, I require a strong chariot to carry us on the Autobot of lust and wanton behavior. Of course, the back seat must be as long as our prone bodies and swathed in the buttery skin of a dozen calves. Late in the evening, present a recent copy of your press kit containing reviews, articles, and photos of you with such stars as Colin McCulkin, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Ricardo Martin. This will lower my inhibitions, loosen my loins, and raise your chances of getting your freak on with me, Kevin Charles. <laughs> and let's get this one thing crystal clear, Buster. This time, you will supply the condoms! Then maybe you, Todd Bannon, will be uh, able to be the king of my daddy's 77 Lincoln Town Car. Shut up, zipper mouth. Everybody knows your high school gym prom looked more like a cardboard cutout of the set of Titanic and that you couldn't even get an escort service to furnish you with a bowling partner for the after party, Chris Trudeau. You know, I know what you're thinking. I'll never be as pretty as all y'all. I'm just going to go on being this horrible parody of myself until the day I die. So tell me, am I prettier when I cry or prettier when I laugh? <laughs> God, this is so much horseshit being the girl. <laughs> Nothing but anger and fear and sorrow and never being enough to be that one thing that we should never have to be in the first place. Never being just happy with enough. Always more and more and more and more and more. Wigs, corsets, hosiery, breast forms, shoes, earrings, anklets, necklace sets, chokers, eyelashes, fingernail polish, eyeshadow, pearls, evening bags, lipstick, belts, mascara, boas, alcohol, laxatives, eyelid jewels, potpourri, mirrors, toe rings, gloves, lotions, diet pills, G-H-E. Till we end up at the bottom of a fucking receipt. I was coming to the world new again, always beautiful in every scintillating in shade. All, all I need is a little makeover, some slim fast. There's a reason why bees are attracted to beautiful flowers. Just look at how symmetrical I am. I'm a fucking goddess. I am love, I am perfect peace, I am co-creator of my own life, I am endless enthusiasm, free choice, perfect paradox. I'm Venus, I'm Mars, I'm Jewel, I'm Christina Aguilara. I'm born anew, I am beautiful. Beauty. It's not to love. I'm not the flower. I'm the vase that holds the flower. I'm not the flower. I'm the vase that holds the flower. And this is my first gay and lesbian transgender prom. Judges, what did you think?
She swears she knows nothing of poetry. Yet when the talk turns to last line, she asserts that they must make musical sense, that you have to know you've come home. For a moment, she is so sure of herself, and I dive into the topic with vigor, eager to reassure her that her reasoning is sound, before doubt at feeling out of her depths plucks at the tail of her thought like the unseen question mark that robs so many poets of their declarative power. She is my sister, older by several years, and I've pulled her from her world of a two-doctor family and preschool twins for a two-day road trip in her shiny new Oldsmobile to the shabby darkness of an Ohio jazz club to watch me perform my first published poem. She feels underdressed and out of place in this word-strewn realm where the night begins half past when she collapses into bed, but she was the first to her feet as I eased triumphant off the light-hot stage, clutching me to her so tightly I could feel the pride oozing into my skin. Now, despite her penchant for cabs, we're striding deserted city streets, lit only by flickering streetlights and the animated glow of her growing fascination with the life-giving words that I am enslaved to, and for once, I am the wiser sibling. We're stopped staring at the incongruity of the austere beauty of a 19th century church sprouting up from the city block, and she declares that if she could come back as anything, it would be an architect stamping her soul into edifices stretching themselves for the sky. It's not the first revelation of the trip. We've been exchanging little slivers of ourselves like kids with marbles or collector's cards, the harrowing root of my claustrophobia, trapped, heart-hammering in a locker at age 10, for the desolate stretch of nameless New Mexico highway where she goes in her mind to listen to the wind, all tucked in carefully among long-lost inside jokes and singing along loudly to Aretha Franklin. It's been a decade since we've had 48 hours to spend on no one but each other, and we've been busy finding each other once more. We hit the hotel lobby hours past the point at which her carriage turns back into a pumpkin, but it's her pace that lags as we head for the elevator, her glance, straying over her shoulder to the bar, littered with a handful of businessmen and the other scraps of a late Tuesday night, and she asks if she can buy me a drink. Because neither of us is willing to put to bed the discoveries of the day, even though neither of us is willing to say as much. And I know we've at last come home. All right, judges! I think my bowels are psychic. My bladder has only the slightest inkling that paranormal experiences happen to internal organs. Always have the excuse of alcohol or stress to explain it away and convince itself that nothing really happened. But my bowels, my bowels are psychic. The only real question left is, are they passively or actively psychic? Do they detect disturbances in my daily life just before they happen and drive me to the toilet in a forlorn hope of avoiding them? Or is it like sympathetic magic? Do they only move when the crap of life is already on the way? Whatever the mechanism, damn they're sensitive. Enough to pick up special deliveries on the way up the front walk or important long-distance phone calls about to be made. But of course, I ignore them. Maybe if they could speak inside my mind with a totally fake late-night TV third-world accent. Listen to me, boy. I'm all knotted up. That means you don't go work for this man. He make you miserable. Take the other job, hon. 
Maybe I'd listen to my balls if they came from high in the Carpathians and did card tricks before warning me. I see shit in your life. Endless shit if you move to Fresno, California. <laughs> or maybe if my bowels communicated like some Zen mystic. How many kinds of sorrow are there? Do not have sex with this person. <laughs> then maybe I'd pay attention and accept just how psychic they are. If they could speak, English that is, my bowels might be the first agency in history to confirm the existence of extraterrestrials or to communicate with whales and dolphins. Sometimes I think maybe if they stuffed clay tablets full of ancient writing up my ass, then my bowels could make clear the wisdom of long dead civilizations. Of course, maybe they're actively psychic. Maybe my bowels cause the effects. Maybe they're pulling the strings, forcing people to come to my door unannounced the moment my pants go down. Maybe the reason my ass rarely even hits the seat before somebody asks me, are you done in there yet? Is because my bowels are secretly forcing people to ask these questions because they just like all the attention. <laughs> Normal bowel control may not be enough. Maybe with meditation, biofeedback, and secret Tibetan Buddhist bowel exercises, I'd acquire the super fine bowel control necessary to influence world events, bring peace to Jerusalem and Belfast, change history, open the gates to alternate dimensions. Picture every last coked out scion of every old political gangster family in this country moving to my rhythms. All the Bushes, all the Kennedys, under the sway of my bowels. At least then, politics wouldn't be the same old shit. We'd get some new shit in there. Now, if you'll excuse me, the spirits are calling. <laughs> I've got a 9.0, a 9.5, and a 9.6! Give Drax balls, balls a round of applause! <laughs> Freudian slip, but he's got balls for doing that piece, so give those a round of applause too. Time penalty of 0.5. Twenty-six point five is the, the, the final score. Final score: twenty-six point five for Drac. Give him a round of applause. That concludes the second round of the Callum's. My score reaches a cruise through. And starts to drink your milkshake. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up.